Welcome to The Debris. This is where we talk about what was left behind by Hurricane Katrina and the floods that followed. I'm your host, Jenea Williams. It was the atmosphere sitting over the water. There was Maggie's as many as you could sit outside. There was, um, you know, looking at the water. Fitzgerald's Swanson. It was nothing like sitting outside overlooking the water. And so that would never be the same again. Sissy McConnell grew up in the west end of New Orleans, along the south shore of Lake Pontchartrain. Now she works the counter at Captain Sid's Seafood in Bucktown. We do a lot of boiling here. One time we had this pot, we called it Big Bertha. This pot would boil 500 pounds. And now we have another big pot, but it wasn't quite the same as Big Bertha, that pot that would hold, I mean, hundreds of pounds of crawfish. Bucktown is a waterfront community just west of the 17th Street Canal. Before Katrina, people went for the fishing camps and the old-school restaurants right on the waterfront. Now, the lakefront in Bucktown is quiet, except for a huge water pumping station built to bail water out of the city during a hurricane. The restaurants out on the lake were swept away by Katrina. It just don't have that old Bucktown atmosphere like it used to. So many relatives and friends lived along the 17th Street Canal with, and all those houses that look like camps. So, but now, uh, I mean, that's all gone. Now they have all the pumping stations over there. That pumping station is a constant reminder of what's missing in Bucktown. Like a lot of the city, this neighborhood is scarred by loss. Abandoned houses or empty chairs at the dinner table. New Orleans is rebuilding around a conspicuous absence. According to numbers from the U.S. Census and the IRS, 236,970 people left Louisiana between the summer of 2005 and the summer of 2006, mostly because of Hurricane Katrina. Census details can't tell who's a former resident returning and who's new, but as of last year, the state had only recovered about 100,000 people, less than half of those who had left. Cassandra Cousin is one of the people who left the state after Katrina and has yet to return. Producer David Weinberg brings us her story from Los Angeles. On July 18th, this past Saturday, a very rare thing happened while I was talking to Cassandra Cousin. It rained in Los Angeles. It was nice having the rain because we need it here in California. I miss that rain from New Orleans. <laughs> I also miss New Orleans, which I didn't want to come this far, but I had no other choice. Cassandra wears her hair pulled back tight in a ponytail, though a few tiny wisps of hair escape and hang down beside her sparkly hoop earrings. When she smiles, a glimmer from a silver tooth in the back of her mouth peeks out. She was born and raised in New Orleans. I'm from the Seventh Ward area, right off St. Bernard Avenue, around Corpus Christi Catholic Church. Yeah, just made 59 July 12. Cassandra's evacuation to Los Angeles was not her first trip to California. She actually moved to Los Angeles in 1979. Her cousin Donna lived here. And Donna got me a job working for Car Blanche credit cards on Wilshire and Normandy. And I used to catch the bus every morning. I used to catch that 6 o'clock bus every morning. And I loved it working there. But then my mother got sick. And I said, well, I better go home. A few days before Katrina hit, Cassandra got heat stroke. 
She was taken to the hospital in an ambulance. And so that's when a couple of days later, they was talking about the storm was coming. And I tell you, it was bad. When we was looking at it out the windows, a lot of them girls and stuff was in there so scared, you know. But I was used to hurricanes because I had been in so many of them. I had been in Betsy. I had been in Andrew. I, you know, Ivan wasn't so bad. But Katrina was the worst. Oh, my Jesus. Katrina was a disaster. And so another reason why I don't want to go back down there because I don't want to be in another hurricane because it was just too much for me. After the storm, buses came and picked up Cassandra and the other patients and took them to a small town in Louisiana. And I can't remember the name of the town, but I know the population was not even over 200 And then they put us in their hospital. So we stayed there for two weeks. And then they came and told us that we had to leave. We had to either contact a family member or somebody that could come and pick us up. So when I called my family, they were all gone because everybody had left. And they told me that, They had a lot of people where they was, and they didn't have any more room for me. So what I did was, you know, I said, well, I have a cousin in California, which was Donna. But when I came here, I was at the airport. I was lost. It was like I was just totally lost. And so I thought about the Red Cross. So I went directly to the Red Cross. The Red Cross put Donna up in a hotel, a travel lodge just east of Hollywood. From there, she was able to get in touch with her cousin Donna. She came, got me, and I just spent like a weekend by her home. And then I went back to the hotel. And I stayed in there for six months. And I was by myself. And... You know, it was really hard. It was a hard thing, but at least I had shelter. Cassandra remembers other evacuees showing up at the hotel. Three guys moved into the room next to her. A couple of women on the other side, a family down the hall. But one by one, all of them left. Until she was the only Katrina survivor living at the hotel. And then I went into a severe depression. I mean, a severe depression, you know, because... I had been to Los Angeles, but I never knew nothing how to get around in Los Angeles. It it was really, really overwhelming for me because I didn't want to leave home. I wanted to go back home, you know, but I wasn't able to go back because the conditions, you know, were not good. Every day, Cassandra would get up and take the bus to the Red Cross. The Red Cross provided meals and a social worker— a lifeline who helped her deal with the loneliness and worked to find her an apartment. And occasionally, Cassandra went to her cousin Donna's church, St. Bridget, a Catholic parish founded in 1920, when the neighborhood was predominantly white. Over the last 95 years, the demographics have shifted. Whites moved out, African Americans from the South moved in, and today the neighborhood is primarily Latino. Though the majority of the congregation is African American, more than half of whom trace their roots back to Louisiana. The people was just 
you know, so nice to me. Even, some of them even helped me, you know, like gave me money to buy shoes and stuff like that. Another member of the church talked to his landlord. He had an apartment for rent. He let Cassandra move in using her housing voucher. It was a one-bedroom at 54th and Crenshaw. Cassandra called up her son Eric and told him he should move out to Los Angeles and live with her. So when he came here, he didn't like it at all. He wanted to directly go back home. So the church gave him a job. And when the church gave him a job, he changed his mind. Now he loved it out here. <laughs> Cassandra's son is one of the reasons she decided to stay in Los Angeles. She thinks the opportunities for him here in California are better than in Louisiana. Oh, yes, yes, Lord, yes. I'd rather him out here. He just completed a master's degree in human resources at the University of Phoenix and is planning on getting a doctorate. He now works at Home Depot. Since he got the job at Home Depot, he's been there a whole year, and he loves his job. No, I wouldn't want him to be in Louisiana, no. Today, Cassandra and her son live in a house next door to St. Bridget Catholic Church. It owns the property and rents it to Cassandra and her son. It's a light brown bungalow with white iron bars on the windows and a small porch. A towering palm tree shoots up from the backyard. Pretty much every Saturday at 4 p.m., Cassandra takes the short walk out her front door to the church to attend Mass. She sits near the front. A stained glass window depicting the Virgin Mary looks down on her. On the opposite wall, a portrait of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. hangs above the organist. The services are beautiful at the church. It really is, the services. And, you know, I always did say, you know, the closer you are to God, the better your life will be. He sure eases my pain. A few weeks ago, Cassandra took a trip back to New Orleans to visit family. It was hard. Oh, my God. I hated to come back because I, I had that, that kindness, you know, with the people and the hospitality. I was, oh, I was so full of joy. I really was. And I'm trying to keep it on me while I'm here, that feeling. Cassandra says she doesn't have any plans to move back to New Orleans. But I'm contented where I'm at. I'm contented. Sometimes I wasn't, but, you know, I guess everybody have them kind of days, you know. I think I'm going to stay here. I think I will. That was David Weinberg in Los Angeles. It turns out Cassandra's journey from the Gulf Coast to the West Coast follows a very familiar pattern. Louisiana has seen a lot of its people leave town for better jobs and homes and opportunities. The first wave of the so-called out-migration happened around 1910 and again right after World War II. That was an out-migration of African Americans, far disproportionately, from the South, and that certainly included Louisiana, to the West Coast, to the Midwest, Elliot Stonecipher runs a public opinion polling firm in Shreveport. He's been looking at migration and residency patterns in Louisiana since way before Katrina. We spoke last week about who's left Louisiana and why. 
The point is, the Louisiana that people left in 1900 and 1910 was anything but where African Americans wanted to live. They went to the West Coast. They went to the Midwest for better jobs. Then, after World War II, it happened again. So we understand what that migration was about. That was people voting with their feet. Stonecipher says that even though there have been waves of migration out of the state before, Louisianans tend to stay put. We have always been a place where nativity, as it is referred to by demographers, is a big issue. We always were in the top 10 states in terms of the percentage of people living in Louisiana at any given time who were also born there. And as a matter of fact, in the last two censuses, 2000 and 2010, Louisiana has been the number one state in America in the percentage of people who live here and were born here. And now that percentage is right at 80%. We are a very unique state in this context. So there's truth to the rumor, or there's truth to the statement that people don't leave. That's right. I have also heard that people who do leave New Orleans or Louisiana tend to leave for college or for jobs, and then they come back. That is a New Orleans phenomenon. There is a very real narrative, very much in place and being filled in as we speak, that young people are coming back to New Orleans post-Katrina. A lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people may be associated with entertainment arts. They're coming back, and it's all part of the resurrection, if you will, of New Orleans. The resurrection of New Orleans, an infusion of new people, and sometimes a return home. Edwin Duplessis cuts a striking figure. He's six foot four, long and lean, and he has a tattoo of a black panther that climbs from his collarbone up the side of his neck. When he's telling a story about his second line club, his energy is infectious. Sometimes you forget that he's a grandfather many times over. In the summer of 2005, most of the Duplessis family was living in New Orleans, including Edwin's mom, sisters, and nieces and nephews. So a few days before the storm, he started watching TV to see which way Katrina would turn. At the time, I was living in New York. I turned on the television and seen this monster, and I'm like, this thing going to hit New Orleans. And I watched that state glued Thanks, Carol. I'm to the television. Brian. The story is breaking at this hour. Hurricane Katrina, the monster storm bearing down on New Orleans, coastal Mississippi. I started seeing the water and how deep the water was. And that got to me. Buildings have collapsed. There are reports from New Orleans of uh, people trapped in buildings. And then that have come down when I seen the lady and her baby at the convention center, that's when I had to stop watching. Too dangerous right now in those plus 135 mile an hour winds. To put- I tell you, I was away from New Orleans for 24 years. I've been back and forth several times. You know, I've been in the military. I left. I left when I went to college. I even left when I was in grammar school. And I always came back. Edwin lives uptown these days, near his job as a chef at Laurel Street Bakery in Broadmoor. The commute from his apartment is 10 minutes walking or 5 minutes driving, and you can't beat that, he says. But when you ask where he's from... Seventh Ward... Born and raised, went to St. Peter Claver, A.J. Bell, and St. Augustine High School. 
In the summer between 7th and 8th grade, Edwin was allowed to spend a few weeks in California with his grandfather's brother, Uncle Joe. Him and his brother and a cousin of ours. You know, back in the 50s, they had a great migration with black folks leaving from down south. You know, a lot of people started going to Chicago or whatever, but a lot of people went to California, you know? Right. That's that huge migration Elliot Stonecipher mentioned, mostly African Americans leaving the south for a better life in other places, Illinois, Michigan, California. What was it like when you got to California? It was it was pretty big because that was the first time in my life that I had really ever left New Orleans. Everything was new to me, you know. I mean, imagine you're a kid coming from the flatlands. Then all of a sudden, you wake up one day and you're surrounded by hills. And it was like, to me, coming from the Seventh War, it was like moving to Beverly Hills. So I immediately knew. I called my mom and said, look. I don't think I'm coming home. So my mom would say, well, I got to talk to you. I said, I already did. Edwin had a ball that year, riding bikes in the California foothills with his cousins and visiting San Francisco and Berkeley with his uncle's family. But he had a girlfriend back in the Seventh Ward, and they had been writing long letters back and forth. And he felt his first twinge of homesickness when she wrote him about a coconut she had been thrown at the Zulu parade, the parade that Edwin had missed because California kids went to school the entire week of Mardi Gras, which Edwin thought was ridiculous. Missing even one Mardi Gras was already missing too many, so that summer he told his mom he was homesick and headed back to the Seventh Ward. But Edwin ended up back in California for college. Ever since that first summer at his uncle's house, he said he had his heart set on going to UC Berkeley. He still had memories of walking through downtown Berkeley as a kid and getting the same hippie vibe that reminded him of people in the French Quarter back home in New Orleans. Wherever he went, he always managed to find a little piece of home. It's like when I was living in New York, my kids got tired of me listening to Rebirth. I wear Rebirth out. If you don't like it, well, I think I pay the electricity bill, so I think I'm running things here. You know, they got so tired of that, and that was because even though I left New Orleans, I still was trying to connect to New Orleans some kind of way. Just a few years before the hurricane, Edwin had been working the graveyard shift at the World Trade Center on the night of September 10, 2001. On the morning of September 11th, he had already gone home by 8.45 a.m. when the first plane hit the first tower. He had missed being there by a few hours. A lot of people that he knew at that job, he never saw them again. So by the time he turned on CNN four years later to check on the path of the storm, he wasn't exactly a stranger to tragedy. But Hurricane Katrina was different. He had guilty feelings that he couldn't shake off. When I was watching CNN... And they kept showing the Circle Food Store. I mean, it was like they wasn't really trying to show anything else. I said, you know, 
I grew up three blocks from the Circle Food Store. That was my grandmother's store. That was my mother's store. You know, the people in that lived around the Circle Food Store, that was their Walmart, okay? And I said, look at my home. This is my birthright. And I started really feeling guilty. Okay, it was my hometown. I'm a thousand miles away. I can't find nobody. Trying to call this one, trying to call that one. And I'm watching my city die, my hometown die. And the guilt came in because I couldn't do nothing about it. After Katrina, you know, it's more or less like in New York City I became a hermit. You know, and I never knew the reasons why I came back before, but this time I really felt um, guilt. That's what really brought me back. And I said to my daughter one day, I said, look, boo, I think I'm going to move back home. It's, it's time for me to go home. I told her, I said, if, if I'm going to die, I don't want to die here in New York. I want to be at home where y'all could throw me a second line and get a band, you know, take me to the bridge, call it a day. Do you think you'll stay this time? I'm not a young man, okay? I have a good job, and I'm in a second line club, and I've rooted myself deeply back in New Orleans. I think... When I do leave, they're going to put a suit on me and put me in that little box and put me in the ground. And I think that's the only way that I'm going to leave New Orleans this time around. And that's where we'll put down this piece of Katrina Debris. You can find our podcast every week through the end of August on iTunes or use the podcast app on your smartphone. Just search for WWNO and Katrina, the Debris. Eve Tro is executive producer of the Debris. Our producer is Kate Richardson. Digital director is Jason Saul. Paul Mawson is general manager of WWNO. Special thanks this week to Janet Wilson and Alexandra Garretton. Katrina the Debris is produced right here in New Orleans. If you like it, consider supporting New Orleans Public Radio. You can do that at WWNO.org. Support also comes from Dirty Coast Press. Learn more about their locally designed and produced products at DirtyCoast.com. I'm your host, Jenea Williams. Until next time, be well, be good, be safe, and thanks. Thanks.